Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, my guest is Professor Clayton Littlejohn. We'll be talking about his new book, Justification and the Truth Connection, which is newly published with Cambridge University Press. Clayton is a lecturer in philosophy at King's College in London. There's a long-standing debate in epistemology between internalists and externalists about justification. Internalists think that a belief is justified in virtue of certain facts internal to the believer. Externalists deny this. They hold that facts of some other kind must obtain in order for a belief to be justified. In his new book, Clayton Littlejohn defends the surprising view that a belief must be true in order to be justified. That is, that there are no false yet justified beliefs. This thesis is externalist in that it holds that the justification of a belief depends upon something outside of the believer, namely, that which makes the belief true. Yet Littlejohn argues that his externalism is able to accommodate many of the concerns that typically drive epistemologists to favor internalism. To be more specific, Littlejohn claims that his thesis that there are no false yet justified beliefs allows for a richer and more plausible account of our epistemic obligations than standing versions of externalism are able to provide. Littlejohn's book, then, works at the intersection of contemporary epistemology and broader concerns in value theory. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Clayton Littlejohn. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thanks. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Oh, thanks for having me. I was really looking forward to this. Great. Today on New Books in Philosophy, my guest is Clayton Littlejohn. He's the author of the new book, Justification and the Truth Connection, which is newly published by Cambridge University Press. Clayton's book is uh, a major contribution at the cutting edge of epistemology. Uh, Clayton defends the view that there are no false justified beliefs. And I take it that one needn't be a professional epistemologist to get a sense of the intrigue that accompanies that thesis. Um, but the book is also deeply engaged with issues at the intersection of epistemology and value theory more generally. So I would say the book is um, recommended to a broad range of philosophers, not simply epistemologists. But um, before we get into the details of Clayton's book, why don't we begin with the author himself? So Clayton, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into philosophy and how you came to epistemology and this project in particular? Sure. So I came to philosophy uh, late in college. I started out studying biochemistry, uh, not because I thought it was particularly interesting. I think I just didn't know what else to do. And around that time, I started to get interested in some philosophical issues having to do with, with freedom and consciousness, because I didn't quite understand how to, under, how, to, how, to, how to understand how there could be freedom and consciousness in the sort of, uh, given sort of the naturalist assumptions that I accepted at the time. And I didn't really understand how there could be freedom given supernaturalist assumptions at the time. So I started taking some philosophy classes just because I thought there were some interesting philosophical issues to think about in college. And, and then I got hooked and 
since I had no real love for biochemistry, it wasn't difficult to give it up. Um, and it was around that time I was taking some some political philosophy classes, and I got to know some of my professors reasonably well, and they they recommended graduate school. And I thought that sounds like a pretty good career path, so uh, I gave it a shot, and then then it worked out. Um, so I haven't haven't looked back uh, since. Well, excellent. And so you got into philosophy. Um, from, you got to epistemology from political philosophy. Was there any connection there, or did you um, make some progression from political philosophy to ethics and then to epistemology? I'm, I'm just. I think I'm, that's. I think that's probably right. So around that around that time, I, you know, I took some courses in, in political philosophy and a couple of classes in moral philosophy. And I really got interested in issues having to do with moral luck. And, you know, throughout, uh, throughout both undergraduate and graduate school, I was, I was really worried about a number of issues uh, having to do with moral luck. So issues about how, you know, my moral beliefs would have been radically different if I had been brought up in different cultures and questions about whether then I would have been responsible for living out those beliefs and things like that. And those issues in various ways then made me interested in, in issues in, in moral epistemology. And then once I became interested in issues in moral epistemology. I became interested in issues in epistemology more generally. So it sort of got into it through the ethics and the political philosophy and then just sort of slowly moved towards, I guess we might call pure epistemology. Right, right, right. Well, excellent. Um, let's turn to uh, talking about the book. Is that all right? Oh, that'd be great. Sure. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned in, in the, the little bit I said uh, a minute ago, um, justification and the truth connection um, – is essentially focused on very fundamental foundational questions in epistemology. Um, and you cover a, a lot of ground. Um, it's one, one of the really nice things I think about the book. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a relatively slender volume given how much philosophy there is in it. Um, but uh, the, the entire book I think is in the – if I'm right uh, – is in the service of um, trying to make some headway – uh, and maybe even trying to diagnose uh, a kind of impasse in epistemology, um, and particularly with respect to conceptions of justification. So the, the main uh, focus of the book is the internalism-externalism debate, or maybe it's better to call them debates. Sure. Um, so um, can you just, before we get into the, the, the nitty-gritty of, of, of your own treatment and, and your own uh, uh, positive uh, contribution uh, to those debates, can you, uh, can you give us just a, a broad overview of the internalism-externalism disputes uh, and where they stand uh, in contemporary epistemology? Um, sure. Um, so when I first got into these debates um, – I started reading a lot of the sort of standard articles on justification, right? So I'd read the standard things written by Goldman defending reliabilism, some things written by Coney and Feldman defending evidentialism. And I, I would sort of get into the debates and I found, I don't think I'm alone in this. When you get into those debates, you sort of, you work through them for a while and then you start to wonder what the larger picture is supposed to be. And it seemed that one side was really interested in the notion of justification because of its connection to things like knowledge, knowledge acquisition, knowledge production, and things like that. And then you thought, well, knowledge is, of course, one of the most interesting issue, uh, concepts in, in philosophy. And so that's why these debates about justification matter. They're going to help us understand knowledge. Right. And then the other side, they seem to sort of connect justification up more closely with normative notions about responsibility and rationality and 
and, and reasonability and things like that. And, you know, some, some epistemologists like Foley think there are really two sets of central questions in epistemology, one having to do with knowledge, so questions about what we can know and what is knowledge. But then on the other hand, these questions about what I should believe, these questions that seem more distinctively normative. And when you start to realize that sort of the people in the internalist camp tended to care more about the normative questions and then the people in the externalist camp tended to care more about uh, issues about knowledge, it started to seem like the debate was really strange because you started to think maybe these two people are just debating about really separate issues. And yet they still can't quite get themselves to agree to, to right. disagree. Right. And what I also found was that when I talked about these debates with people outside of epistemology, they also, right, they tended to find these de debates to be a bit opaque. So what I wanted to try to do was to try to find a way to, to determine one, you know, is, is there really an issue here? For these two groups to be uh, to be fighting about, and two, you know, what what might that issue be? So, I, I I sympathize with those internalists who think that questions about the acquisition of knowledge or the production of knowledge or things like that shouldn't be so closely connected up with issues about justification, right? So one of the things we might have learned from Gettier cases is that justification's role isn't simply to turn a true belief into knowledge or make it likely that a true belief will be knowledge, or any of those sorts of things. So I do think that the concept of justification is a distinctively normative notion, and it really belongs with those questions that have to do with what I should believe or what my obligations are as a believer. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that justification should really be thought of in normative terms, really connected up with whether it's permissible to believe or proper to believe or whether you're meeting your epistemic obligations. I think where I part with the internalists is I just don't see why there'd be any interesting connection between the internal, as, as they think of it, and obligation. Right. So when you think about the, the, the standard sorts of options out there, in the internalist camp, you have people who think that roughly whether your beliefs are justified has really to do with what's internal to you, where that's understood as something like the, the, your mental life. So nothing beyond your mental life and nothing external to your perspective could have any bearing on whether your beliefs are justified. And what that means really is that none of those things could have any bearing on whether you meet your epistemic obligations. And it's just that thing that I started to worry about. And maybe this is connected up with these debates about moral luck. If you take right. a certain line in those debates about moral luck, you think, well, no matter what your perspective is like, there's always going to be this worry that maybe you have, as it were, the wrong perspective. And working through your own internal perspective on these things will never put you on the right path. It's a hard line to take in the moral luck case, but it's a line that people are willing to take. And so I thought maybe there's a similar line we should take in the in the epistemic case. Right. And so now just help us to to fill in the picture. So the internalist is somebody who thinks that whatever justification is, it's something that um, has to do with something inside the the believer. Um, mental states, access to certain kinds of features of mental states or reasons or something like this. Um, and w whether those states obtain or whether there's that kind of access is what settles the question of whether a particular belief that a sub an agent has uh, is justified or not. Can you spell out just a little bit uh, what the externalist uh, uh, what, what's the what, what the externalist holds? Sure, right. So, so one way to think of the internalist view is, I mean, first, you know, line between the internal and the external. And in philosophy of mind, we like to draw that line sort of, 
you know, the body in counts as internal and the body out counts as external, but that'd be a weird way to do it in epistemology, right? right? Because, I mean, it seems like, you know, the things that are right in front of my eyes are more internal to me in some sense than say, you know, the, the level of cholesterol I have in my blood, right? Although that's right. skin in. So, so we might use something like perspective or the mental to capture that notion of, of what's internal. And then you might think, okay, so anything else that falls outside that line, anything that's sort of extra mental uh, will count as external. And what externalists have typically done is focused on those aspects uh, of, of, of a subject that are external to their mental life, but will determine whether there's a reliable connection between aspects of their mental life and the truth. So the thought might be something like this. If you have some sort of input understood broadly, that might be um, an, uh, an apparent perception or an intuition or an apparent memory or something like that. What determines whether that kind of input can provide justification for your beliefs doesn't just depend upon sort of the nature of the input. It also depends upon whether inputs like that would reliably lead to truth. So you can cap, you can say that the internal is relevant. It's just not the only thing that matters. And what will determine whether the internal elements are adequate to provide justification has to do with whether you're embedded in an environment where those internal elements reliably lead to some sort of external goal. That's a, a standard sort of externalist view. And there right. are different, different ways of developing it. But of course, if we just define externalism as not internalism, we're not committed to that. I mean, that's, that is sort of the standard externalist line, but it's not the only available line, right? If you're going to be an externalist, any of the external facts are fair game. You can put any of them in to your theory of justification if you like. Um, some of them don't seem like particularly good candidates, and I might have hit upon some that people will say are terrible candidates. But strictly speaking, right, it's, the externalist is committed to very little. They're just committed to the idea that there's more to justification than just the internal. And, you know, for the last few decades, the, 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 the external thing that interested people had to do with reliability and things that established sort of non-accidental connections to truth. Okay. Right. That might and one little further detail, just to, sure. in a way, I mean, to help me, I'm not, you know, I, I dabble in epistemology at best. Um, is is externalism uh, motivated or is one of its selling points or maybe one of its virtues, according to, is, is there an anti-skeptical um, advantage uh, to the externalist? Do, do they, are they able to ward off certain skeptical worries that I take it internalism might have to grapple with? Mm. So that's a that's a really good question. Um, I don't know if I should say that they're able to. Uh, well, okay, yeah, I'm so, sorry, yeah. So, well, yes, I will say that. I mean, I, do, I don't spend a lot of time defending it in the book, but you know, you should you should just say what you think. And yes, I think that externalist views do much better when it comes to fending off skepticism than internalist views. We might distinguish between two kinds of skeptical threats, right? One kind of skeptical threat targets knowledge, and right. you know, my book says very little about knowledge and really focuses on justification. And other kinds of skeptical threats focus really on the justification of belief. I think those are sort of the more interesting ones. Right. I think most of the interesting skeptical threats will say that you're not in a position to know precisely because you can't have good enough reason to believe something in this area. Now, I, when, I, when, I, when I think about this issue, I think there's a sort of standard way of running a skeptical argument. And a standard way of running a skeptical argument goes something like this. Think about the worst possible case. Think about the case where you're systematically deceived by a demon. And the demon's job, right, is to defeat you at every turn. So, so you're trying to discover the truth. 
And the demon's job is to try to prevent you from doing so. And the demons, right, as we know, are very good at their jobs. So, <laughs> so they'll create right, a, a, a series of appearances that don't in any way match reality. Now, I think a lot of people think something like this, that in, in doing that, right, we have sort of the worst case scenario, and then we'd have a sort of best case scenario where it, what's common to the two scenarios are appearances, uh, but what's different between them is that in the good case scenario, there's sort of no demon and those appearances lead to truth. Mm-hmm. But someone could say something like this, look, you would have the very same reasons for your belief, whether you were in the good scenario or the bad. Right. And the thought here is that since those reasons aren't good enough in the bad case, they surely aren't going to be good enough in the good case. After all, those reasons don't put you in any position to know whether you yourself are in the good case or the bad. Mm-hmm. So this is, I think, a familiar kind of skeptical argument. And one way to challenge that argument is to say, well, like this focus on reasons is, is, is really kind of unmotivated, right? The reasons do some work, but we should also think about the role that, say, reliability or something like that plays. And I don't really discuss that in the book. I want to challenge that idea that your reasons for your beliefs would be the same in both of those two cases. So what I want to say is that as an externalist, you shouldn't buy into this idea that you would have the very same reasons for your belief if you were systematically deceived. You might agree that those reasons wouldn't be good enough, but you shouldn't think that as it were, the, the sort of the, the systematically deceived subject's reasons are exactly the same as your own. There's some overlap, but there's also some difference. So I do think externalists have a lot of resources to respond to these kinds of skeptical arguments. I mean, are these skeptical arguments decisive against a non-skeptical internalist view? Uh, I I happen to think that they are, but that's a a large issue that I I didn't spend enough time discussing in the book. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to ask you, uh, that was just a philosophical thought that you, you, you occasioned in me about the connection between externalism and just anti-skeptical mm. uh, uh, ambitions uh, in general. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, um, maybe it's true of externalisms in all kinds of areas of philosophy that one of the motivations is to ward off a skeptical concern, right? So maybe semantic externalists have this. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. Sure. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think that's a, I think that's a perfectly valid point. Although I think it's also valid for the internalists to say that it's easy to think you're going to ward off these skeptical threats by not taking a principled position and saying anything in the world could help me avoid right. the skeptical threat. So I, I, I sort of fear, uh, as as an externalist, about just about everything that it. <laughs> It becomes a sort of it becomes sort of a crutch. I sort of think, right. well, why limit yourself to the internal? If I help myself to everything, right? Maybe these skeptical problems will go away. Right, right, right. So let, let's th- that's very helpful. Um, let me ask one uh, methodological question at this at this point. Um, sure. uh, because again, as I've mentioned, I, one of the the other features I really like of the book is the way in which you seemingly you know seamlessly move between. Uh, what uh, what I recognize as sort of straightforward epistemological concerns to um, value theoretic uh, uh, concerns um, uh, about a responsibility, permissibility, um, uh, obligation, and notions like this. So let me ask, just in the very in the very broadest sense. Um, so how do you understand? I mean, this is not a topic taken up in the book so much as manifest in the book. Uh, how do you understand? 
um, the relation between epistemology and value theory more generally. Is epistemology a kind of value theoretic enterprise or do you see these as two different kinds of enterprise uh, which nonetheless are such that concepts from the one can be imported into the other uh, uh, and, and do some work? Uh, okay, so yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so I don't think that, as it were, every aspect of epistemology is going to be directly connected up with sort of value theoretic uh, uh, considerations, but I do think at least part of it is. So the first thing I wanted to do in setting up the discussion was to say that I, you know, I agree with the internalists that the, the sort of the preoccupation of the justification knowledge connection, uh, that might be a mistake. I mean, it might not be, but we shouldn't start there. We should really start with the idea that the issues about justification are connected up with issues about what I should believe. And a lot of epistemologists, what they want to do is to draw on discussions in ethics to try to understand the nature of obligation and the nature of reasons and things like that. So I don't think I'm the, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who thinks that there, there should be a connection, although I probably have very uh, distinctive non-standard views about the nature of practical obligation. But I do think that the, the, the practice of trying to argue by analogy uh, from ethics to epistemology is pretty common. And um, one, of the, one of the people that I, I discuss a lot, uh, a philosopher named John Gibbons, I mean, he puts the point this way. When you're dealing with notions like reasons, when you're dealing with notions like obligation and things like that, there could be differences between, say, practical obligation on the one hand and epistemic obligation on the other or reasons for belief and reasons for action. Of course, there could be differences. But when we're, when we're looking at things from a very broad level, right, the differences should in some sense call out for a kind of explanation. We could look for an explanation, right? And we could find one, right? right? But at some broad level, right, we should expect there to be more symmetry than, uh, than, 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 than dissimilarity. So I, was, I thought this was a, sort of a useful starting point. And then I thought, okay, so when I think about the nature of obligation um, and I think about the idea that, say, being an internalist about practical obligation, I think about that idea. I don't think that's a, a particularly... Uh, plausible idea. And so I, I think one way to try to argue is to go from a kind of externalism about practical obligation, the idea that one's obligations and whether one meets one's obligations depends upon more than just what's internal to one's perspective, to try to argue from there to a kind of externalism about epistemic obligation. And, you know, the argument from one to the other isn't going to be airtight. It's going to be a lot of arguments by analogy and things like that. But I think it's a plausible way to proceed, and I think it's the way that many epistemologists have proceeded. It just happens to be that I think I disagree with a lot of what people say about the nature of obligation, permission, and things like that. So do you, let me just press this one, sure. one step further. Um, so in certain moments of the book, one, mm -hmm. and in fact, I think you even say this in, in, in various places, um, although I'd have to check my notes to, 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 to cite page numbers and things. It does look as if the um, uh, the the practice of holding people epistemically responsible or giving them credit or holding them as blameworthy in the epistemic sense mm -hmm. does look for you like a common a, a place where you're ready on a lot of these issues to begin, right? That is that it looks like that provides the launching point for you and for your analysis, right? Sure. That these practices that look a lot more easily um, uh, uh, um, analogized to the moral kinds of cases. Sure. Um, 
Now, let, I just just fill me in here. Is that uh, is that is that common among contemporary epistemologists to take the you know these almost in, in some cases I guess almost Strassonian like what do we what are our practices of responsibility or taking responsibility for or holding responsible? How, do you know is it common for people to start there in epistemology, um, or is this a unique feature of of, of your own uh, uh, approach? I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's universal, but I don't think it's totally uncommon either. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing you'll find is something like this. You'll find someone saying, "Look, I want to understand the nature of epistemic duty or obligation," and then they'll say, "As as as inquirers, right? What we want, right? The ideal case is we want our beliefs to fit the facts, or we want knowledge. But the way that we try to get there, right? We can't get there directly because we don't have this godlike ability just to sort of." see facts, right? right? We have to get there indirectly. So we have to follow the information that's available to us. We have to follow the evidence that's at hand. And that all seems fine, right? And then there's this idea that if you follow your evidence, uh, you know, conscientiously, uh, and you've sort of done all that could be reasonably expected of you, then in some sense, you've sort of done your duty, you've met your responsibilities. And then there's this thought, how could you fail to be justified? Right. Now, I think part of that's right. Um, there's a sense in which if you've sort of assumed responsibility and you followed the evidence where it leads and you've done all those things, then there is something going for you, as it were. But I think the thing is here is that there's something going for you. But I don't think that settles the question as to sort of whether there's something going for your beliefs. So when I think about the analogous question in ethics, I think, look, when we have people who are conscientious and they follow the evidence, um, one of two things will happen. They were conscientious and they followed the evidence and things turned out well or things turned out badly. And there's a question, uh, an interesting question about how we should think about what turns out well and what turns out badly. Should we think of that as the contrast between the fortunate and the unfortunate? Right. And so it doesn't have any deontic significance. Or should we think of it as the difference between a person who excusably fails to meet their obligations in the bad case and the person who meets their obligations in the good case? Now, right. For various reasons, I, I think that when agents, as it were, uh, attempt to do things like, say, keep a promise and return a book, uh, and then they fail uh, through through because they, they, they made a mistake or they're ignorant to some fact, then I think in some sense, right, they might have displayed a high degree of virtue. They might be perfectly praiseworthy for what they've done. But these, to me, suggest that they should be excused for failing to meet their obligations. So I take that just to be an important fact. Uh, so, I mean, you know, Ross says things like that, you know, it's plain that your obligation is to do things like keep your promises and return books, not simply to try. Right. right. Now, suppose you think that's right. I mean, obviously, that's going to be deeply controversial. Is that going to have any bearing on your epistemological theory? Well, I think it should. And I think it should for the following reason. Um it seems really strange to me, at least, to think that what practical reason demands from us is to do things like be at places, return books, help, not harm. Right? These are all these all have to do with successfully bringing about or avoiding bringing about certain kinds of external states of affairs. Right. I have a hard time understanding how practical reason would demand those kinds of things from us if epistemic reason didn't, as it were, place similar kinds of demands on us. So suppose you thought that all epistemic reason cared about was that you, as it were, followed the subjectively available evidence to a conclusion, and then it didn't care what else happened. So right. you follow all the evidence, and you come to believe 
say that the mushrooms in the garden would be great to serve your neighbors. So you serve them. And then they're all poisoned, right? right? Practical reasons says don't serve the mushrooms, right? It forbids the serving of the poison mushrooms, let's say. Right. I find it really weird to think that what happens is that practical reason says whatever happens, don't serve. And epistemic reason set sanctions or requires you to believe that you should serve. Right? right. It would be as if practical reason and epistemic reason have sort of tried to divide you against yourself. There are the bodily obligations. Don't dish out mushrooms. And then there are sort of the mental obligations. Go ahead and keep telling yourself to serve the mushrooms. I find that idea just really strange, right? And right. it is something that I think most people would be committed to if they thought that there was no principled connection between the practical and the epistemic. Right. So I wanted to try to bring considerations about the nature of practical obligation to bear on debates about the nature of epistemic obligation, both because I thought it was a useful sort of source of evidence for testing competing theories, but also because I think it helps to shed light on why debates in epistemology might matter, right? I mean, when I talk to my, my friends who are ethicists and not at all epistemologists, and, and, and they don't quite understand why people would get worked up about, say, the nature of epistemic justification, well, I mean, here's sort of my pitch. It's almost a kind of transcendental argument. If, if you want practical obligations to work a certain way, I think you have to make certain assumptions about the nature of epistemic obligation. Right, right. So, so that's the sort of the broad, the broad picture. Well, excellent. Um, so let's, that's, uh, that, and I think that that's a, a, a real exciting feature of the book um, that um, there is an argument, uh, a very, a very elegant one, I should say, um, about trying to, you know, make, press the case for thinking that, you know, uh, our practical reason and our reason, you know, our thinking about these epistemic obligations have got to, if not be unified, they at least have to they can't divide us against ourselves, right. uh, which I think is uh, totally compelling. Um, so let's uh, move on to uh, uh, the, the 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 little teaser I already mentioned about the the sort of uh, the newsmaking um, uh, claim of the book. The the thing that I'm sure a lot of the epistemologists who are listening um, will find uh, uh, shocking and intriguing and uh, uh, provocative and the rest. So. Um, the uh, the central sort of plank uh, in your positive view is uh, that justification is factive. Mm -hmm. um, that means that uh, only true beliefs are justified uh, and that there are no such things as uh, false beliefs that are justified. Right. Um, now, uh, I think, uh, again, th this should strike anybody's ear as a, as a bold, any philosopher's ear as a bold thesis, where, where even those of us who don't teach epistemology are regularly in the habit of making distinctions between, uh, you know, what somebody is justified or what it's okay for them to believe. And even though it turns out that they're wrong, um, so, um, can you just first set up a little bit about why um, your thesis, no no false but justified belief, might strike someone as uh, shocking or, or provocative, and then um, maybe sort of work us through some of the different kinds of 
uh, different ways in which we might assess or understand justification, justified in believing that P, justifiably having the belief that P, these sorts of distinctions. Can you sort of walk us through um, uh, uh, the provocativeness of the thesis and then try to uh, show us why it might not be provocative exactly in the way it might have sounded at the beginning. Okay, uh, so that's a that's a tall order. I think most people yeah. say that I couldn't possibly do what you've asked me, but I'll I'll try. Um, so one of the things that I, I one of the one of the sort of issues that I really got interested in that I think helped me uh, sort of think through the issues in this book. Um, I used to be really interested in in arguments from error and sort of arguments from error sort of all over the place, right? So. So I'm going to sort of run a kind of argument from error, and I think that'll help people see why uh, why this no false justified belief thing um, at least strikes people as being so deeply problematic. Right. So, so again, what I want you to imagine, right, is I want you to imagine a subject who uh, who is very similar to you in many respects, right? So, so they're they're going to be belief identical for everything they happen to for everything you happen to believe they happen to believe, and everything they believe you believe. And it's not just that your belief identical, you'll be apparent memory identical, you'll be intuition identical, you'll be apparent experience identical, you'll be equally clever, you'll be equally conscientious. You're very, 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 very similar. You're very similar in every internal respect. You're similar down to the last qualia. It's just that, right, and we'll go to the sort of skeptical scenario. One of you, let's let's say not you, let's say the other one. Right? Okay. The other one, right, is is deceived by the demon. Now, just think about them in their situation, right? They're starting to ask themselves questions like, uh, you know, will I have dinner in an hour? Now, well, I guess you wouldn't be asking that question. I might be asking that question, right? You might we be could asking, say We could say lunch. Yeah. Lunch, yes. Will I be having lunch in an hour, right? So, so again, in the bad case, the person raises this question, and they bring to bear all of the sorts of things that you seem to bring to bear on that question. And my thesis, right, the no false justified belief thesis suggests that there's sort of nothing available to them that would allow them to properly settle that question or justifiably settle that question by judging that they'll have lunch in an hour. Mm -hmm. And then there's just this worry, right, which is, well, wait a minute. If that subject's resources are the same as your own, maybe that means that you, Bob, I mean, even in the best possible case, you don't have the resources for properly settling that question. Because it's not as if you have available to you, right? Descartes was wrong. There's not as it were, it's not like there's something available to you, which is a sort of easily identifiable set of reasons that would just rule out the very possibility of error. So you start to think, well, that, that seems really weird, right? Now it sounds like neither of us maybe should believe that we'll be having lunch in an hour. But then the, the sort of the non-skeptical intuition start to kick in. Surely, right, me in this case, right, if there's anything I know, it's that I'll have lunch in an hour. And if I can come to know that on the basis of the resources that I have, then surely I, my belief must be justified. How could, how could you know something if the belief isn't justified? And if my resources are just the same as their resources, then surely their belief must be justified. Sure, it's not knowledge, right? It's not true. But justified, right? It's got something going for it. And then some, you know, some of my friends who get really exasperated at this point say, what is that subject supposed to do in that case? Right. Right? Okay. So some people really feel the force of this intuition, and this intuition is sometimes called the new evil demon intuition. I've probably thrown in some things there that maybe other people wouldn't, but, but people really get in the grip of this intuition. And they think that to reconcile, as it were, my thesis that there are no false justified beliefs uh, with the thought that in the best case you could have justified beliefs, 
that you could only get to have justified beliefs if you somehow had resources available, they would rule out the very possibility of error. But, you know, no one believes we have those resources, right? So it's very tempting to say, look, our resources are adequate, but they're fallible. And if we have adequate but fallible resources, then surely there must be false justified beliefs. Okay, right. so that's the kind of argument that would show that, or at least convince a lot of people that the position I'm defending is, is utterly indefensible. I mean, unless you wed it to a totally implausible skeptical view of just the kind that I, well, just the kind that I call totally implausible. So, um, so I, mean, I, I need a way to fix this, right? And sometimes I worry because I just gave the argument and it seems so persuasive that I sort of think maybe I shouldn't have put this in print. But let me try to sort of step back and, and, and say that I think there's something uh, a, little, a little wrong with this. Okay. So a lot went into trying to motivate this sort of no, this sort of argument that there could be false justified beliefs. And one of the things I tried to do to motivate it was to say something like, look, fallible methods of belief formation, those can be good enough even if fallible, right? That's one thing that sort of Descartes got wrong that we get right. So fallibility is not, as it were, um, a guarantee of failure, right? So um, I don't know if you're an Arrested Development fan, but there was a Yes, I am. So there's this poster, right? It's fun and failure both begin the same way. But I mean, you can imagine people, right? Sort of Descartes right, had a poster. It said, you know, fallibility and failure begin the same way, right? right. Just <laughs> trusting a fallible source guarantees failure, right? right. Um, okay, so, so we have to think, right, that, that fallibility can lead to success. I agree right. with that. So, so we'll start there. Um, I think that fallibility leads to success in precisely those cases where it leads to truth, right? So... Imagine you had a view uh, that said that if you deploy your fallible resources and then you just end up with a true belief somehow, that's good enough, right? That's a fallibilist view. It's a fallibilist view, however, that makes no room for false justified beliefs. So the thought, right, that sort of fallibility is going to settle the issue is just a mistake. Okay. And to really, I think to illustrate this, right, consider the following view of justification. Uh, very few people have this but it is a view that's defended by Jonathan Sutton. Imagine you just identified justified beliefs with knowledge. Now, if you identified justified beliefs with knowledge, then you would get for free, as it were, the idea that there are no false justified beliefs, but you'd also get for free, as it were, the anti-skepticism, right? right? Because we're fallibilists about knowledge, right? But we think knowledge is a status that doesn't involve error. So if you just take a view uh, that identifies knowledge with justified belief. It's a fallibilist anti-skeptical view on which there are no false justified beliefs. So whatever's wrong with the view I'm proposing, it's not as it were that it forces us to choose between uh, sort of as it were um, infallibilism on the one hand uh, or skepticism on the other, right? That's sort of a, a, a distraction. I think some people thought that was the case, but I think it's pretty easy to see it's not the case mm -hmm. just by entertaining the possibility of identifying justification with knowledge. That view that identifies justification with knowledge is really, I think, too demanding. So let's weaken it, mm -hmm. right? Suppose we just weaken it and we say that justification requires something less than knowledge. Well, it could require something less than knowledge and still require truth, right? And it could be something that we could have on the basis of our fallible methods. So again, I don't think there's any, any kind of argument from the sort of anti-skeptical fallibilism to the claim that there must be justified false beliefs. So, so why is it that people think then that there, there must be justified false beliefs? Some people just think it's intuitive that in the bad case, as it were, 
there's something good going for that subject. Right. And I agree with that. There is something good going for that subject. There are lots of good things I can say about that subject. And I can say that subject is just as reasonable as, as you are or I are. I am. I can say that that subject has shown all the virtue that could be expected of them. I can say all these things. But the, the crucial question is not, do we think well of them? Do we think that they have tried their best? Have they shown their virtue? I think there's a further question, which is, are their beliefs justified? And to get a fix on that notion, the question I would ask is this, right? Are there norms that govern belief uh, and the way that beliefs are formed that they've violated? Because if there are norms that they've violated, right? I mean, then the idea would be that at best, their beliefs might be excused, but by virtue of the violation, they couldn't be justified. Mm-hmm. So what I tried to propose in the, in the later part of the book is to describe a set of norms that govern belief. And if you violate those norms, you might be reasonable in violating those norms because you didn't see what they required of you. You might be excused in violating those norms. But the idea that you violated a norm for sort of no good reason and then you're justified in doing so, I think that's a mistake. So the crucial question then becomes this. Are there epistemic norms that, as it were, enjoin us not to believe falsehoods? And so what I try to do through the book is to try to motivate the idea that there are these norms. And so when you violate them, uh, you can't believe with justification, but you might be reasonable, you might be responsible, you might be virtuous. Lots of good things to say about people who violate norms. That's what excuses are all about. Uh, But the point of a norm, right, is to establish what's permitted and what's not. And once you've established something's not permitted, the question as to whether it's justified seems a little strange. After all, right, we got into the question about justification by thinking about what should I believe. So in in the later part of the book, I try to establish that there are norms that do require you to refrain from believing falsehoods and in light of those, the best you could hope for in forming a false belief is that you'd be excused. You'd be excused because you displayed a certain degree of virtue. But again, excused. Right. So one thing that might, um, that might help. Uh, so I, I guess as, a, as, an, as an amateur in this, this field, I, I, I feel strongly about <laughs> uh, attached to the, uh, the possibility of there being false justified beliefs. Um, and I guess that one of, one of the, the, the things that, um, uh, might be getting in my way, um, Mm -hmm. is this word justified, um, uh, works at so many different kinds of levels. And we could be talking about very different sorts of evaluations when we're talking about uh, beliefs being justified, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that it was in the book um, uh, that, that I just want you to, 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 to try to run us through quickly now mm-hmm. uh, that, was, that was helpful to me was distinctions between, you know, propositional, I mean, there's the standard distinction between doxastic and propositional justification, but also you, you want to talk about personal justification as, uh, as, as something further. Um, can you, can you walk us through, uh, how that, that, that three prong distinction, uh, might help us get, might help someone like me get clearer on sure, sure, how sure. you can say not justified belief, but excusable. We don't blame the person in some strong sense. We can still say that it's rational, all of these things. Maybe that would help me. So sure. No, that's good. Um, so if I was to try to explain the notion of justification to someone, I might try to use, um, notions like, uh, a defense. Mm -hmm. So, 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 you know, maybe you, maybe you broke the window and you're in my apartment. Um, 
And I remind you that there are good reasons not to break into people's apartments by smashing their windows. But you say, look, I, I, I appreciate that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend what I've done. And you, you identify a set of considerations, right, that would sort of speak in favor of doing what you've done and show, right, that there was a good reason for you to do so. One that would, as it were, defeat the reasons there were for you not to do so. That's a pretty familiar idea, right? So, so you might say, well, it was an emergency. And if I was really convinced that it was an emergency, I'd say, well, on the one hand, you know, there were reasons for you not to break in, but I can see that your breaking in was justified, right? right? Now, in that case, what's happened, right, is we focused on the act, and it looks like the justificatory standing of the act depended upon when it could, whether it could be defended, right? And so we try to give a defense. We try to think about the reasons against, we try to think about the reasons for, and we look at all of the reasons that spoke in favor and spoke against, and we try to figure out whether your response was, as it were, the fitting response in light of all the reasons. Now, I think something similar can happen in the belief case. You form a belief. We think about the reasons for, we think about the reasons against, and if it's a fitting response, we'd say that we can, we can defend the belief. And in defending the belief, you're just showing that it's justified. Now, I think in the practical case, it's pretty clear that, you know, you do something, you, you smash the window, you get into the apartment. It may well be that the reasons you offer aren't really strong enough, right? You might have heard what you thought was a cry for help, and maybe there wasn't one. So there you are standing in my living room window smashed, and you say, look, I thought that there was a call for help. And I'd said, well, look, there wasn't. <laughs> so there wasn't a particularly good reason for you to break in. However, you've sort of displayed all the virtue that could be required of anyone in the circumstance. It's really hard for me to blame you, given that I, I appreciate what your reasons were for trying to get in. So, so in that case, right, it looks like what we've done is we've shifted from trying to defend the act, right? We've given up on that, right? Because there were a lot of cons and there were almost no pros and we've shifted to trying to defend you. Right. right? So we can move as it were between defending the act and defending the agent. And so I think we can talk about justifying the agent and justifying the act. And what this case seems to show is that you can, as it were, defend the agent by showing that their actions are excused without offering what you might call a kind of crypto justification of the action. You're not defending the act at all. You gave up on that. And I think something similar happens in epistemology. People form their beliefs. They're led to believe something by a set of considerations. And it may be that they're led astray. Well, we think quite well of them, right? Because they tried their best and they believed what reasonable, conscientious people would believe. So we can defend them. And in defending them, we might say that they're justified. But defending them does not commit us to defending, as it were, their beliefs. So I do think the internalists are right that when it comes to defending a believer and trying to show that criticizing the believer is inappropriate, we really do have to focus on the agent's mental life because we want to know whether they've displayed the kind of virtue and responsibility that could be expected of them. And that all has to do with the mental, or at least largely, you might think. But when it comes to defending the beliefs that they have, I say that has to do with whether or not those beliefs conform to the norms governing belief. And I don't think the norms governing belief are exclusively concerned with the inner workings of the believer. I haven't said what those norms are, by the way. I'm just sort of throwing out there that you could have, I think, a sort of a neutral way of setting up the issue, right? Defending beliefs, defending believers, and asking about the relation between the two. And then once you've set up the issue that way, you can ask, can you defend a belief just by pointing to features that are internal to the subject? I say no, maybe internalists say yes, but I think that's a neutral way of setting it up. Right. So when we think about the case of systematic deception, I think, yes, it's very easy to defend that subject from criticism. 
You can't call the person foolish. You can't call the person irresponsible. We do call them ignorant, right? Because they're right. mistaken about everything. And, and maybe the fact that they're ignorant has some bearing on, on whether their beliefs are defensible or justified. So I, I think, you know, the, the defensible and the justified, right, these are quite similar. And we think about the ways that we defend individuals and then on the one hand and their attitudes and actions on the other. I think this is a nice way of trying to set up the dialectic. Right. Well, that's that's very helpful. Um, let me uh, just move to 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 the further uh, uh, to a further step, or at least a further step as I see it. So um, I'm I'm wondering now if you could make uh, explicit um, why the way you've set up the, the the motivation and the way you've you've presented the case for the uh, no false justified belief thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, why this is an externalist view, and and I take it that a right. crucial element of the story has to be, uh, or is uh, in the book uh, spelled out as um, something about you know beliefs are supposed to guide us in in our reasoning, or they're supposed to provide us with with the resources to reason well. Um, sure. And the claim then is that I take it that a false belief isn't going to be able to, to play that role. It's going to lead us astray. Right. So, okay. So if you could sure. connect those, those, those pieces together, that, that, that'd be helpful to me. Yeah. Right. So sort of in the abstract structure, the idea is that justification has to do with defense and to defend a belief is to make the case that it conforms to the norms that govern it. So I step back and I ask, right. So what are the norms that govern belief? And some internalists say things like, well, the norms that govern belief have to do with evidence. But, but not much else, right? So, so the idea is that your obligation as a believer is to, to follow the evidence. So, you know, you can think about Clifford, right? right. And, and, you know, Clifford has the it's always wrong everywhere, anyone, yada, 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 yeah, yeah. to believe without evidence. Right. But what's interesting, right, is that there's this other thing that I don't think Clifford ever says, but this is a lot of what internalists think, that it's right always everywhere and for anyone to believe on the evidence, so the thought is, is that just by believing on the evidence, that would ensure that you've met your obligations, whatever else happens. Okay, so that's, that's a view you could have, right? And you might think that, okay, so all of the epistemic norms that, 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 that apply to belief have to do with fit between belief and evidence. And I, I take it that's the kind of view you might find amongst a lot of internalists, especially people like Coney and Feldman and people like that. Mm-hmm. It's a perfectly respectable view. I just think that it's wrong, right? So, um, I think, right, that if you if, if you think about belief, right, it's not as if belief tries to fit the evidence, right? That's not its aspiration. I mean, belief's aspiration is to is to go beyond that and fit the facts. Now, I I think, right, that that a sort of a neutral way to try to get at this is to think, look, both sides seem to agree that beliefs play some role in reasoning. They play a role in theoretical reasoning. They play a role in practical reasoning. They play a role in producing emotion and things like that. And if you just focus on the role that belief plays in theoretical reasoning, a lot of people like this idea that if a belief is justified, then it's properly included in reasoning. Right. right. So if you justifiably think that lunch is coming in an hour, right, then you can justifiably treat the apparent fact that lunch is coming in an hour as a reason for more beliefs or as a reason for action or as a reason for feeling a certain way or, or whatever, right? So what I want to say is we start with that idea. Start with the idea that there's a norm that governs belief that says if a belief isn't fit for the purposes of reasoning, then that belief 
right, is, is one that can't be defended, it violates the norm of belief, and it can't be justifiably held. So the evidentialist might say, well, whether a belief is fit for the purpose of reasoning, it just depends upon the evidence that supports it. And my claim is that that's not true. So my claim is that no, whether a belief is fit for the purposes of reasoning, as it were, depends upon whether that particular belief provides a reason for further belief or for action or for feeling certain ways. So I say, you know, the job of belief is to, is to provide reasons so that you can, you, can, you can feel what you should feel and you can think what you should think and you should do what you should do. And those kinds of slogans, I think a lot of people will accept. But I do think that as you think through the implications of that view, you'll be led to the kind of externalist view that I defend. So in making the case that there are no false justified beliefs, I think one of the crucial premises is the idea that there are going to be no justified beliefs that aren't properly included in deliberation about what to do or what to believe. And I think some evidentialists might accept that, but then that's where the substantial disagreement is going to come to about whether there could be false beliefs that can do what beliefs are supposed to do. Right, right. And it's externalist because, again, this is just to make sure I've got this as a fundamental or maybe even a rudimentary point. And this is externalism because the question of whether whether the belief is justified um, depends upon whether it can play the right role in, in our deliberations. That depends upon whether the belief is true or not and whether the belief is true or not is something that depends on something outside of what's in your head. Right. So I get to, I get to the idea that beliefs in some sense are supposed to be true from, I think, a prior step. One step is that what reasons are, and here I'm talking about reasons that, as it were, uh, apply to you or demand things from you. So these are normative reasons, reasons to act or to believe. I think of reasons as, as facts, right? right. So, so for, like a, for something to be reason for action, it has to show that there's something, as it were, favorable or good about the action. And what does that is a fact about the action. Right. So if you, if you think that, as it were, uh, the guiding or, or normative reasons are themselves facts, and you think that the job of belief is to provide those things, those reasons, you're supposed to, you're supposed to provide those for the purposes of deliberation, then you get as an output, as it were, that only the true beliefs are going to be fit for the purposes of practical deliberation. Right. right. Now, I mean, people can jump off in various ways, right? Because not everyone thinks that reasons for action are facts. Or some people think that it doesn't matter whether a belief can provide you reasons that you can then reason from, right? right. But my claim is just that if you accept those two premises, you're going to be led to the kind of externalism that I endorse. And I think what's interesting about this well, I mean, if it is interesting, right? I think, what's, I think what's interesting about this is this, is that most people, you know, if you look in the literature, most of the arguments for externalism say, look, justification plays a role in knowledge acquisition, so it has to, as it were, make it likely that your beliefs are true. But none of the argument I've given focuses on that at all. It focuses on the functional role of belief and the role of belief in reasoning. That's a kind of sort of internalist idea, right? That, that, whether a belief is justified has to do with whether it's properly included in reasoning. And I've tried to go from that kind of idea that should, in some sense, be uh, one that internalists are sympathetic to. And I've tried to get from there to the kind of externalist view that, they, that they're not sympathetic to. Right, right. Um, so, it's so a, yeah. Anyway. So let me, let me just, I, we're, 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 yeah. you've been very generous with your time. Um, so 
let me just uh, ask you to address that that last point uh, in a little more detail because you know one of the things that I like in philosophy in general what I what I like to see uh, in philosophical argumentation is when somebody uh, you know uh, uh, promotes a, a view and then tries to show his opponents or her opponents that um, that the, the the view they oppose is actually the thing that has the goods that they wanted all along. So right. I take it that one of the features of your view is it's an externalism that's supposed to show to internalists that um, the very goods that internalism was supposed to deliver, maybe even the motivations that people were appealing to in uh, promoting internalist views, that actually your externalism delivers on those aspirations in ways that the internalist can't. So it's supposed to give the internalist a reason from within his own uh, uh, aspirations to right. become externalists. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? Right. So, so think about the, think about the, think about the connection between uh, reasons on the one hand that uh, maybe determine obligation or determine whether an action or an emotion is appropriate. And then the reasons uh, sort of for which maybe you act uh, or feel something. Um, what I want to suggest is something like this, is that the way we should think about a justified belief is a belief that puts you in a position such that the reasons for which you act or feel are the good reasons there are to act or feel. Mm -hmm. And if we start from that idea, right, then I think something, uh, something interesting happens. Because think about the reasons that would make a certain kind of emotional response fitting, like let's say anger, right, uh, or happiness or something like that. If, if I said, well, Bob is angry because one of his colleagues uh, keyed his car, or the reason for which Bob is angry is that one of his colleagues keyed his car. I think in some, right, there's, there's some questions we might ask here, but, but one thing you might think is, okay, so, so long as the sort of the reason that, that sort of moved Bob to, to his anger, uh, as long as that's sort of in touch with reality, then maybe his anger is justified, mm -hmm. right? It's sort of, it is a fitting response to the situation. Now, think about the belief that, as it were, sort of led you to be angry about this. I think there's something odd to the idea that the belief is, in some sense, the one you should have if it didn't put you in a position to be angry for sort of the right reasons. Right. Right? So the thought here is something like this. Uh, whether the anger is fitting has a lot to do with what happened to your car on that day. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something odd to the idea that reason would sanction the belief that would sort of make rational the anger if the anger itself wasn't fitting. Or reason would sanction a belief, say a belief about what you should do in light of what happened to your car, right? right. So maybe what happens in those kinds of cases is that um, you should demand an apology, or maybe you should forgive, or whatever your story is, right? right. There's going to be a story about what the right response to that kind of situation is, and there's going to be a story about what the wrong response to that is, and let the ethicist tell you what it is. So take your favorite story, right? Maybe the thing to do in that situation is to go talk to them and forgive them. Right. Okay. Now, that's, that's on the practical side. Now think about the belief side. Suppose you thought that all there was to meeting your epistemic obligations was following the evidence or forming beliefs on the basis of a reliable process or put in whatever your favorite non-factive theory of justification is. Mm -hmm. Now you're led to the belief that what you ought to do is punch the person in the nose. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea here is something like this. On, every, on all the non-factive views of justified belief, you could have a situation where what your obligation is to forgive 
But what your epistemic obligation is, as it were, is to believe that you should get vengeance. Right. right? And then I think something very weird happens because there's a kind of gulf between the way your body should be, you should be off, you should be forgiving, and the way epistemic reason requires you to be, you should be believing that what you ought to do is not forgive, but to punch someone in the nose, right? right? And now it looks like that these two sets of reasons have in some sense divided you against yourself. Right, right. And I think it's very weird to think that that's just what we should want from a theory of justification. So when you think about those cases where you've come to a belief about what you ought to do. I think in those cases, right, it has to be that at least in those cases, the belief about what you ought to do, if it's justified, it has to be correct. Because the idea here is that sort of practical reason and epistemic reason can't divide you against yourself. And if like me, you think that what your practical obligation is, is determined by the fitting response to the external situation, then epistemic reason has to, as it were, forbid those beliefs that would set you up to respond to practical reason inappropriately. And the only way I see to do that is to have this non-factive theory of justification. Right. Um, so would it be, you know, would it be correct to say then that the outcome of uh, the result of the book, the upshot of the book, or, you know, if, if your conception of these matters is correct, then what gets shown is that externalists with effective conception of justification can do better than internalists in getting the evaluative aspects of epistemology right. I think that's a, that's perfectly put. That's right. Okay. Well, all right. well, done. <laughs> well thank you for that. Um, you've been very generous. I always ask people at the very end uh, what's coming next from you. So uh, I, I won't buck the trend here. Uh, so Clayton, uh, what are you up to now? So um, having, having written this, uh, I've turned to um, another project. I'm writing an, an introduction to epistemology. Um, it's oh, going to be part of this, this collection, the, the This is Philosophy collection that, that Stephen Hales is editing. Right. And um, it's going to be an introduction to epistemology. I think, I think it's going to be fun because it's going to be more, uh, more centered on um, the puzzles that make epistemology interesting and, and working right. through the puzzles as opposed to just sort of summing up the results. Um, so it's, it's a lot of fun, and uh, I enjoy it tremendously, and I, I wish I could work on it uh, for a long time, but that has to be done soon. And um, <laughs> I'm also working on um, some papers about the nature of perceptual experience and the connection between perception uh, on the one hand and, and perceptual knowledge on the other. So um, that's, that's what I'm working on right now. Well, all that sounds great. Uh, I will definitely keep an eye out for the uh, for the um, this is philosophy epistemology volume. Uh, that sounds that sounds uh, uh, really wonderful. I always like um, books in you know that, that try to um, introduce people to areas of philosophy, but aren't um, you know greatest hits or or historical that are just sort of here are the puzzles that the people who do this for a living are really really motivated by and worry about and these are the things that keep professional epistemologists up at night um i always find that those are are um more illuminating than here are the the five best rationalists and the three best empiricists kinds of uh, uh books um so that that's that's exciting and I, I'll, I'll look i'll look forward to reading that um but for now um let me just thank you uh uh, for uh, for joining us today, um, uh, it's been really really great, and uh, you know I, I really enjoyed the book uh, Justification and the Truth Connection. All right, well, thank you, Bob. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Okay, bye. 
You've been listening to my interview with Professor Clayton Littlejohn of King's College London. We were talking about his new book, Justification and the Truth Connection, which has been published by Cambridge University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.